What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Showtime Forum podcast, talking all things purple and gold. I'm your host, Chris Camello, joined, of course, by my co-host and Showtime Forum contributor, Mr. Chaz Pearson. Laker Nation, what's good? We got another good one for all you social distancers today. Did the worm invent load management? How did Phil Jackson become the Zen Master? Did Zeke's walkout ultimately allow him to pay a price? And what happened to the 91 Lakers? We're breaking that all down and more on this edition of the Showtime Forum podcast. But before we do, be sure to follow us on all social media and streaming platforms at Showtime Forum. That's at Showtime Forum. Also check us out on our website, theshowtimeforum.com. Chaz, man, oh man, we got a lot to talk about today, a lot to unfold, and it started with a a very uh, a very back and forth debate in our text messaging yesterday. But before we get into anything with the last dance and Rodman and Phil and Zeke and Michael and everything, we actually had some NBA news uh, hit the scene today. Why don't you break that down for us, man? Oh man, yeah, it's it's some good news. It's a step in the right direction. Hopefully, everything goes. Uh, according to plan, obviously things are kind of out of our hands right now with uh, the coronavirus. But some good news on a day like today, Shams Sharania of uh, Stadium and The Athletic has uh, reported that the NBA has informed its franchises that it is targeting no earlier than May 8th for any use of teams' practice facilities. The NBA will continue to monitor coronavirus pandemic with its timings. Uh, also went on to say sources if an NBA team facilities city is no longer subject to stay-at-home orders, it may uh, it may make facility open potentially starting May 8th with individual workouts and no more than four players permitted at the facility uh, one at a time, essentially. So a max of one staff person, uh, team official in the gym at the same time. And teams were also informed today that players are not allowed to use any kind of uh, practice training facility for workouts other than his NBA team. So you can't go to your local YMCA if it's open. You can't go to a, you know, any kind of public place, essentially, where other people are, are playing if you are an NBA player. So a lot of news that, that's come out today. It's kind of, you know, a step back to what it was like uh, when players were going to the facility right. and having some social distancing before the NBA was shut down. Right. We're actually uh, after uh, Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell tested. They they were still able to practice at the facility, but once the stay at home orders got put uh, began to be put in place, the first of which here in Los Angeles or in California by Governor Newsom, and then spread to New York, uh, that kind of started the snowball effect. And now we're starting to see the trend come back a little bit in terms of what direction we're heading, and we'll see if this trend continues. Yeah, and I think it, I think you're right. I think it is a step in the right direction. It was sort of the same protocol they had before a lot more players had started testing positive and more cities throughout the US had just gone on this uh, total shutdown mode where all business all non-essential businesses were closed. The leagues had gotten canceled and at that point they were just not taking any chances with uh, with any uh, of, of the athletes uh, in any of these leagues. So uh, it's definitely good to see that 
Things are starting to slowly but surely open up. It feels like the numbers are starting to go down across the board. Doesn't mean you still can't be infected. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't be taking every necessary precaution. And it doesn't mean you should be raiding the beaches like they're doing in Huntington Beach, California, and and other places in Southern California and, and throughout the U.S. So definitely stay in your homes. Only go out when, when necessary and just try to take care of yourself. But that you have to kind of go through each of these phases with, um, I would call it cautious optimism. It's like, this is what we're planning, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We don't want to get our hopes too high, and we certainly don't want to open things up too fast and with too many people. So I think it's it's definitely a step in the right direction, a little bit of sun, sunlight at the end of the tunnel, but definitely a ways to go. And still, to me, the way I see that is, I don't know if there's still going to be a season or not, but it's certainly starting to trend a little bit more. The meter's starting to tip more to the right, I think, you know? It's it's all based on testing. If, if our government can figure out the testing and how to get more testing and to implement it in a mass way to the people, right. then there will be sports. If not, then it doesn't matter if these stay-at-home orders are relaxed or loosened. It, it just isn't going to happen. Uh, but one thing I do also want to – Shams also wanted to uh, – he also reported was that uh, a new executive, as far as the facility hygiene officer, each team had to assign one of those uh, for each team. And also, last but not least, players have to wear a mask. Everybody in the facility has to wear a mask if they're – in the facility, that'll be one staffer and one player, one out at a time. Right. Uh, unless spread they're out, no more than twelve feet away. Uh, and, and unless they're actually engaging in like a physical activity or something, if they're running or scrimmaging or doing something like that, right? You, you don't need to right. Be you don't have mask. to wear a mask. Right. Obviously, so I mean, obviously, <laughs> you, you'd be going through a lot, awful lot of masks if that were to be the case. And I mean, I think guys would. Uh, I don't know if that would be healthy or safe or anything like that. So some good news. Some good news. I'm not going to call it great news, but uh, decent news, I guess, if you want to call it that, if you're not too hyped. I mean, ultimately, time will tell how things get loosened up, but certainly, like I said, a step in the right direction, but like I said, this isn't an end-all, be-all that we are for sure going to have a finish to the 2020 season. It's, it's going to be a few more weeks. We're, we're a few weeks away. Huntington Beach, if you could just hold it down for a few more weeks for us, to the, at the very least. Maybe these home orders don't get extended. As of right now, here in Los Angeles, uh, we, we only have about, what, 15, 18 days left. Mm. Will it get extended or, or will it get relaxed? Uh, you know, hopefully it gets relaxed by a little bit because... You know, the, the lines to the grocery stores aren't what they were. There's more people on the street. I was actually out running a few errands this weekend, and there were, there were more people on the street. So I have a feeling things are going to get relaxed, but only time will tell that the testing is, is going to be uh, a telltale sign to see if we get our sports back. But speaking of sports, hmm. we, got a little bit of, we got a little bit of it last night, didn't we? Oh, we, we, we got something. We got something. We got we got episodes three and four of the critically acclaimed docu-series, The Last Dance, chronicling, uh, chronicling the 1998 Chicago Bulls. And the, sh- the focus now shifts from NJ and Jordan to the, the, the third amigo uh, in that uh, second three-peat, Mr. Dennis Rodman, uh, The Worm. And they talked about how Rodman came to be. 
his time with Chicago, how he stepped up after Scotty was was nursing that that injury, and uh, what he meant to that team because he ultimately started to really raise his game as Jordan's co-pilot. And obviously, we all know when Dennis is locked in and he's focused. My goodness, this guy, it, it, he really starts playing like an elite player. And it doesn't matter how many points he scores. Everything else, Dennis, everything else is on, that's on that list, Dennis is checking off. Rebounding, defense, energy, hustle plays, anything you need from the worm, he's going to provide that to you. And we saw how, how um, integral he was to kind of stabilizing uh, the Bulls after that rough start and after uh, or before Scotty was able to come back. Rodman was the glue that held everything together, according to Phil Jackson, while Scotty was out. Rodman did it all. Uh, he figured out, and he said himself, he figured out about his second or third year when he was with the Pistons about what he would really be good at in high school uh, or, or college, rather, where, where he really started to make his name and was able to be able to be drafted and make a name for himself. Right. He put together a really good strain of games, a string of games where he was able to be all offensively the man. Yeah. And by the time, by, by the time he got to Detroit, he was a much better player and figured out exactly what his niche was. And he was able to be one of the greatest of all time at it. The guy who went to the hall of fame for strictly rebounding defense Everything except for scoring the ball, essentially, and, and he did some of that as well. What a what a life he had, and I mean, and what a and not just what a life, what an enigma he was. Because this was a guy who, I mean, he would get bored out there. He would need motivation to play, but once he was locked in, the guy had energy for days. And obviously, thir- uh, ESPN's done a good job doing a thirty for thirty on Dennis Rodman's life. So obviously, you don't get into too much detail about Rodman's life, but you do see that his mom threw him out. Uh, He didn't really have a close relationship. I don't think he ever really had a relationship with his dad. He didn't have a great relationship with his sisters after a while. He was kind of by himself, and he he found a niche in playing basketball, and things just kind of grew from there. And the one thing that I found so intriguing about Dennis was, you know how guys have scouting reports about players, about offensive moves? He had a scouting report with how they missed shots, where where the ball was coming off of off of misses. So he would take he even said this, I would have my friends come out there at three, four in the morning and just put up shots. I would say shoot from there. Shoot from there. And I would just find ways to um, get it off the back rim. And I started realizing when Jordan's gonna shoot it, it's gonna be this way. Magic Magic's gonna have a little more spin on it. Larry's gonna have more spin. So I knew where to be uh, when they were putting up shots direct certain directions of the floor. Like <laughs> I, that was my little Dennis Rodman impersonation right there. But uh, <laughs> uh, but but uh, I think it's pretty accurate to what you would see in episode three of The Last Dance. But that's what just made him a savant. And who I don't know anyone else who studied how to be in position for rebounds based on who was shooting the ball and based on how the ball was going to spin and where on the rim it was going to bounce off of. I know nobody else who ever did such a thing. That was one of my favorite parts. That we're, we're, We'll talk about our, some of our other favorite parts because there were plenty. There was quite a bit in, the, in that episode. In, 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 these last, in, these, in these last two episodes. Um, but he, it, that was one of my favorite parts, just watching him with his hands – show us kind of where the ball was hitting off, whether it be back rim, front rim, coming off the side, 
that was one of my one of my favorite parts. And for him to have that kind of intellect to practice that and have the foresight to be able to master that, um, just spoke to how how great he was. Now he wasn't. Every team has that Dennis Rodman type player. Usually, every ch- great team has that one player that has a little bit of a different mentality, beats to his own drum, and kind of is the glue that brings guys together and keeps things light or keeps things together with everyone. And he that's what he did for the Chicago Bulls right. in his time in his time there. And the thing is the Bulls needed somebody to replace Horace Grant. And Horace was a more polished player obviously, uh, one of the better power forwards over you know during that span and a big part of the Bulls' success in the first three-peat from 91 to 93. Horace Grant was really good. Things didn't end well because of contract negotiations, but he actually ended up finding success success in Orlando. And the Bulls never really replaced that position. And until Dennis Rodman became available in 95, Dennis, even though he had success in San Antonio, he didn't like the coach. He didn't like David Robinson. He didn't like the system. He felt those guys were soft. Uh, I don't think the organization understood him. I don't think the coaching staff or the teammates understood him. So he needed to go to a place that was going to enable him to be who he was. And Chicago was the ideal spot. And Jerry Cross did not want him initially. It was actually his assistant GM, Jim Stack, who felt, hey, with Phil as a coach who understands how to manage personalities and get guys on a single-minded focus and with the leadership on the court that we have with with Michael and Scotty, I think Dennis is going to fit right away. And sure enough, Despite their issues, whatever was in, in in Detroit in the Bad Boy Boys era, and we're gonna get to that. Dennis fit it like Scotty said. Dennis fit it like a glove in hand, man. <laughs> That's right. He, he he sure did. But the, one of the craziest parts was the fact that he took a vacation in the middle of the season, and Michael Jordan said, told Phil, hey. We're not going to get this guy back in 48 hours if he's going to Vegas. He he already knew what Rodman was going to do as far as being wild or you know going out and and hanging out all night and, and maybe you know going on uh, doing a few things with a few people he shouldn't do be with during the season. Right. So 48 hours turns into four days. Uh, four days. Yeah. And Michael Jordan is coming in knocking on Dennis Rodman's door with Carmen Electra in the bed, saying, hey, man, let's get up, get up, let's go, and let's go to practice. That's how great Dennis Rodman was. Dennis Rodman had Michael Jordan in Vegas knocking on hotel room doors looking for him to bring him to practice. That's how much he needed well, Dennis Rodman to finish off that second 3P. Well, and that, that was the thing I didn't understand at first. Uh I don't know if Dennis, when Jordan got Dennis, I think they were back in Chicago at that point. I think uh, Dennis and Carmen Electra were back in Chicago, and I think they were staying at Carmen Electra's suite in a hotel. I don't think Jordan actually flew out to Vegas, because why, w- why would he say, come on, Dennis, we have well, to go to well, practice? Either way, you got Jordan looking for him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, it wasn't Krause, it wasn't Reindorf, Reinsdorf, it wasn't Phil, it wasn't Scotty, it wasn't some random... Team aide who they said, hey, who's probably making 10 bucks an hour saying, hey, go get Dennis Rodman. No, the the big guy, Michael Jordan, is knocking on that door. And Carmen Electra hiding behind the couch. By the way, uh, not, to, not to put you in trouble, but man, how, how good did Carmen Electra look? Not in the archive footage, but how good did she look in that interview? My goodness. Carmen Electra was 48 and still got her fastball. 
I mean, <laughs> my gosh, it didn't, it didn't. I mean, it really didn't look like she changed too, too much at all. So uh, no, she, 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 she had it going, had it going on, and th- there was a lot of, there was a lot of different parts in this, in these two episodes. It, it, the first episode, it just went, it felt like thirty minutes. It really and did. It went by quick. I yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that we, we got to the, to episode four. And now we're, you know, we're, we're deep into the, the history of with, with the Pistons and right. we'll get into that in a little bit next, but it just kind of went so fast. And next thing, next thing, you know, we're, we're all over the place, but the, the production did a great job. That's one thing I really want to, I always keep coming back to. They did such a good job with taking us back mm-hmm. to everybody's origin. Right. So that fir- first part was really Jordan. Second part had a lot of Scotty in it. Third part was I, predominantly Rodman. I'd say maybe 70, 80% Rodman. Yeah. And, and the intro and to even, the bad boys. Right. And the intro to the bad boys and, and, and part four was, was Phil, uh, background of Phil. Right. And going in, going into when the, when the Bulls, you know, won their first championship. So, I mean, just the storytelling and the backgrounds all leading back to a central location or, you know, or a central time in 1998, 1997, 1998. We left off right, we're right before the All-Star break. So right. it, it started to get really good as far as the season. And, and, it, and there were so many good parts in this one. And obviously seeing the growth of Dennis Rodman was, was, was key. And how Dennis kind of went off the deep end. At the end of his time in Detroit... Uh, obviously, his suicide attempt is well known. John Sally had spotted him in his truck with a fully loaded rifle, and he was ready to do some harm to himself. And that was at the end of the Bad Boys era. Chuck Daly had moved on, and I think that was an aspect because he always saw Chuck Daly as as a father, and I think he saw those Piston teams as his brothers. So when that team started to slowly break up, it left him lost. And when he got to San Antonio, I don't think he ever found that again. But when he got to Chicago... I think he found more of that family-type atmosphere. He found the brotherhood in Chicago who understood him. Phil Jackson may not have been exactly what Chuck Daly was to him, but he was kind of like a a different spirit, someone who understood Dennis and that Dennis understood as well, kind of like an uncle that you bond with, that you have a lot of things in common with, who's not quite your dad, but definitely someone that you see as a role model and someone that you look up to. And I, I don't, I think really gave Dennis that sense of belonging again, that he hadn't really had in, in the last three, four years uh, from the, from the end of his time in Detroit through the time in San Antonio to when he got to Chicago in 95. But the one thing I found interesting was he goes to, to practice in his pajama bottoms. I mean, this is what I mean by being eccentric and an enigma. And he's laps everyone in this run that they're doing. Jordan's telling everyone to slow up. Yep. Whoever in the front of the line, slow up. And then Rodman just laps everyone. Jordan says it takes four laps for them to catch up to him. Unbelievable. And he just couldn't understand that energy. He just didn't know how to turn it off. And one thing that I that I thought... Now, obviously, Metal World Peace, formerly known as Run Our Test, wasn't you know the rebounding defensive player that Rodman was, but right. he was he was up there, and Rodman wasn't the offensive player that uh, Meta was. Right. But as far as their relationship to the star player, that relationship from Jordan to Rodman was very similar from Meta to Kobe. Sure. In terms in terms of how Rodman really looked to Jordan's. Uh, look for Jordan's uh, acceptance or his sure. approval to anything that he did. Same thing with, you know, with with Meta, Game Seven 
Kobe passed me the ball. Yeah. Like that kind of <laughs> that that kind of approval. Right. That they got that that just was one thing that really stood out to me, and how when Scotty came back, that kind of. And uh, felt it made him feel marginalized. Robin with with Jordan, yeah, yeah. It made him feel marginalized again. Right, right. So, you know, Rodman messes up, gets thrown out of a game, and and his way of apologizing is coming to to Jordan's door, which he never did, right. and, and asked for a cigar. And they didn't. He didn't apologize, but that was his but way. But Jordan of showing got it. Jordan, yeah, that I'm, I'm not going to let the team down. So that was that was a real good, real good part, and it kind of led into. Phil's impact on Rodman sure. and the Bulls as, as well. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, Dennis, okay, you asked for time off in the middle of the season. We're not talking about the All-Star break. Uh, like, when I first saw that snip in the trailer, I'm like, oh, maybe it was like, maybe he overstayed his time at the All-Star break or something. This is right in, like, January. This is, like, December or January. Rodman said, I, I had to go to Vegas. I had to go to Vegas. I had to clear my head. And, and Steve Kerr said it best. He said, Phil knew he couldn't coach Dennis the way everybody, like, he knew Dennis had more needs. He, he wasn't the same as everybody else. He was a different kind of cat. So if Phil signs off on this, then everyone else is pretty much whether they like it or not, they've got to accept it. We got Scotty back. We could survive this. Because you got to figure four days is the equivalent of what? Maybe two games tops that Dennis missed. And it's still early enough in the season. Yeah. And it's like, okay, as long as we get everybody back and nothing happens to Dennis, we'll be good. And it turned out to be everything Dennis needed. Because from that point on, the Bulls really started to to take off. And, and I think Dennis was so appreciative that Phil and, the, and his teammates understood it. And they put their personal feelings aside because they knew what we're going to get out of this guy when he's mentally right is better than, than anything else we could hope for. So if this is the price we have to pay, so be it. Because we know, we know what he's going to give us once he comes back locked in and, and focused. So it turned out to be a worthwhile gamble. My thing was, I can't believe Reinsdorf and Kraus signed off on that. They couldn't have been happy with Phil or Dennis no, 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 no. for asking that. I don't, I, there's there's no way they signed off on that. That was that's strictly a coaching move, right? That 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 Phil made, which which lead which gives you context as to why Kraus wanted Phil out because Phil had that kind of power where he, he you know he would kind of probably let Kraus know, hey, I'm running this show as far as the players on this side. And that's because Phil was a player himself. It, it goes right. all the way back, part, part uh, one of the, ep- I don't know if it's part three, I think it's part four, actually. Yeah, it is. I went into F- Phil's background, and I knew that Phil coached in the in, in Canada, in the CBA, um, but I didn't know that he coached in Puerto Rico. Neither did I. And. And, and that was a, a part that really gave me a good background as to why he was the way that he was. And it gave us a – I knew he was was eccentric as a player as well. Mm-hmm. But I didn't I didn't know that, you know, he wrote a book that talks about how he was tripping out on ass <laughs> walking down the streets of Los Angeles. So he yeah. he, he was his own person. He, did, he beat to his own drum. I, I don't know if he was known as a hippie, but he definitely wasn't straight as an arrow – at, like a, a lot of these coaches or, were, or as a player, a lot like Rodman was. So he knew exactly what Rodman needed, and that's how he related to him, and why he was able to get the best out of Rodman, and thus make him a Hall of Fame player. Exactly. I mean, Dennis was already having a Hall of Fame type career, and 
I, I mean, this was a guy that was just so talented, so so in, uh, intelligent as well. And yeah, he was eccentric with the tattoos and the and the and the hairstyle and the clothing. But I'll say this for Dennis: he also got some some premier women. I mean, you talk about Madonna and Carmen Electra. How many actors? You take the best looking Hollywood actors or athletes in the world. How many guys can actually say they've had those types of women in their in the same lifetime? Maybe Brad Pitt. Maybe Ben Affleck, maybe DiCaprio, maybe Derek Jeter, but it's <laughs> that group is small. I'm telling you, it really is. I mean, I, I, I even saw that he had Tony Braxton back in the he day. He probably so, did. I mean, yeah, he, 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 he did. He, I, I saw a picture of uh, of them. Uh, that surfaced on tw- on right. Twitter, of course. He was of all he, places. Yeah, exactly. All of our news, so it, it it doesn't make sense. He's an introverted dude. He's so intelligent. He's got a weird sense of style. He's getting all these women. He loves to drink. He, he could be parting out all night and still come the next day and grab 20 rebounds in a game against New Jersey or something like that. He was just an enigma. Very, very talented. And I think as more, we've seen more of the backstory of Dennis Rodman through the other 30 for 30. And this docuseries, we've, go, we've gotten to grow more of an appreciation for the fact that he was a mystery, that he was different, that we may never see any Anybody like this again and I think the closest thing I have I have said you mentioned Metal World Peace but over the last few years has maybe been a guy like Draymond Green but Draymond doesn't have the personality as Dennis Rodman but definitely a guy uh, who is the heart and soul of a team who could captain a defense and run an offense and things of that nature and could dominate a game without scoring a single bucket that's the only guy I could see as a as an equivalent on the court to a Dennis Rodman, but definitely obviously doesn't compare to the personality-wise. Yeah, I don't think we'll ever see another one of that. I, I, I highly doubt there will be ever another NBA player that comes out in a dress like Rodman did, <laughs> or the hair, yeah. or... Or the, or the piercings, you know, that was just him. Yeah. It, it was a good, it was, it was a great episode. I, and Dennis I love the... Oh, no, I was going to say, Dennis is so unique, he invented load management, bro. He invented load management. <laughs> yeah, he, 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 needed to, he needed to manage his load, and he took that load to Vegas, and <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he, he was good. He was good. But what about, I, I, I just, I, I'm ready to get into it, man. I, oh, yeah, I, know, I know we've been talking about, about all the, you know, the great parts of, of this great documentary that's going to go down as one of the greatest all-time documentaries ever. Really. I agree. But, and, and, it's, and the ratings that it, that it has right now are off the charts. It that, is. That, that this, this documentary and the NFL draft are taking full advantage. And Dana White, if, if you're listening, maybe you are, you might want to take advantage. So hopefully you can get some USC fights because anybody that's doing any kind of sporting events right now with the stay-at-home orders, they're setting records as far as uh, viewership, but let's get into it, man. I just want to—I I just wanted to dive into it. It was an interesting day. First take had Isaiah Thomas on, and how part three went into the backstory, and part four went into the full-fledged rivalry that was the Detroit Pistons and the Chicago Bulls at the end of the 1980s into the early 90s as well, where, where it capped off. I'll, I'll let you have the floor first, my man. Tell me. Tell me how you feel. I know. I know we were going back and forth in our text messages about about it, but I, well, I'll let you have the floor first. Here's the thing. Thank you very much for that. Here's the thing. I 
I think this has obviously been a point of contention, and I told you, the, the villain for this series is going to shift from Kraus and basically Reinsdorf to now the bad boy Pistons, particularly Isaiah Thomas. Now, we all know what the Pistons represented. We, we know that they were two-time champions. They kind of came in at that... Uh, at that weird point of the 80s where Magic and and Larry had kind of hit the apex with this with the Lakers and the Celtics respectively they were kind of on the downside of their of their dynasties and here come the Pistons rugged group blue collar don't don't care if they smack you down don't care if a fight breaks out they're going to play hard they're going to play tough they had a closer and an elite point guard in Isaiah Thomas. Him and Joe Dumars formed uh, one of the great backcourt duos of all time. We've talked about what Dennis Rodman meant for them, their defensive stopper. They had a physical front line with, with uh, Bill Lambeer and Rick Mahorn. They had scoring in Mark Aguirre and, uh, and Vinny the Microwave Johnson. Well coached with Chuck Daly. They... they were two-time champions, and their goal was to keep Michael Jordan from that further ascension. And they, he even said, we crashed the party. I think everyone thought Jordan was going to take that throne from Magic and Larry, but Pistons had other ideas. And the Pistons owned the, owned the Bulls. They, they, they invented the Jordan rules. They knew how to defend him one-on-one. They knew how to funnel him into help. And they knew we get into the, he gets into the paint, we're smacking him down. He gets up in the air a little bit, we smack him down. And that was just their their way of playing. And they respected Jordan so much, they geared their defense towards stopping him. And the thing was, at that point, the Bulls' offense was too predictable under Doug Collins. Doug Collins, really good coach. Love him as a TV analyst. Uh, he brought a lot of energy. I love the fact that his shirts were soaked after a game, even as a coach. I thought that was great. That was great. Uh, yeah. But obviously, too much of the offense was geared toward getting Michael the ball in isolation. So that... That fed right into Detroit's plans defensively. So here we go, eliminated in 89, eliminated in 90. Scotty had the migraine in in Game 7 of the 90 Eastern Conference Finals. And, of course, Bulls just didn't have enough. uh, Without Scotty at 100%, they didn't have enough. 91, Isaiah has a bad wrist, but the Pistons had, I think, just ran out of gas. Year after year in the Eastern Conference Finals, too many many games, too many uh, minutes on your legs. Too much wear and tear, it wears you down. And here they are, game four, at the Palace of Auburn Hills in Detroit. And the Bulls are about to win, and they started walking off the court. Bill Lambeer, Mark Aguirre, Isaiah Thomas. Now, you had mentioned, Chaz, well, what about Joe Dumars? I didn't see Joe Dumars in that circle. Maybe he was behind Isaiah. Who knows? I, don't, I didn't see Joe Dumars. There's no footage of where Dumars was at at that point. What makes that image so polarizing isn't just the fact that they walked off before the game was done. It was the fact that they walked right past the Bulls bench and didn't even acknowledge them. Not a handshake, not a nod, not a tap on the shoulder, tap on the butt, nothing. And yes, this was the changing of the guards. The Pistons knew it, the Bulls knew it. But the way Isaiah looks in that moment, twofold, one... He's not leading the walkout. He's following co-captain Bill Lambeer and his good buddy Mark Aguirre. And he's got his head ducked in. And I, and I said it like, like a guy who just got spotted in his girlfriend about to leave the club because he's, he, he got caught talking to another girl. That's what that looked like. And for all the Pistons, rough and tough nature, the bad boys, they're so tough, they're defensive-minded, they're blue-collar, 
in that moment, they looked small to me. And I understand we're going to get into what the Celtics did to them, but that's why I didn't like what Isaiah said. And Isaiah was trying to backtrack it. Well, hey, if we knew the traditions now, what it was back then, we would have shook their hands. And I think it's too late for that. And I don't think Michael really respected a comment like that because it took him years to finally say something that was contrite and showed any sort of regret. And I can't blame Michael for still feeling that way because it will always leave a sour taste in my mouth because he saw it as a slap in the face. He saw it as blatant disrespect. So I can't fault yeah, Michael I, for that. Absolutely. But I, I, this is not a rhetorical question. Yes, yes sir. I, I, I just want to start by saying, I'll, I'll ask this question in just a second. I just want to just... Go ahead. Let, I want to hear your take first. Let, let, I, I, I want to let my position be known that I don't condone what they did. I don't agree with what they did, but I understand what they did, given the context, given the time, given factors that aren't very highlighted in the story and conveniently were glossed over yes. by the producers as well as the director, which was obviously signed off by Jordan and the rest of his team. But not a rhetorical question, actual question. Why do the Celtics walking off the floor when they beat the Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals, I believe in 1987 it was, when the Celtics went on to go face the Lakers, which I think it was 88, lost. actually. I think it was 88. 88? Yes. E either way, they yeah. lost. Um, <clears throat> where the Pistons lost, I should say. Mm -hmm. But why isn't, why isn't that highlighted? Why is that just those two pages are kind of stuck together in history, and for some reason this handshake or this snub of a handshake is talked about more than the Celtics. Why, why is that, in your opinion? In my opinion, I, I think that's a great question. I don't have a clear answer for it. I will say this. I agree with you. I don't condone this stuff either. I don't think what the Celtics did was right to the Pistons either. But I think a lot of it has to do with how, this, how the Pistons played. They, I think they were seen as dirty players. I think they were seen as... That's the way they were viewed. They, they, they were seen as dirty players, guys that hit below the belt at times, got a little bit too personal, and I, I don't know how well-respected they were. And so, it was a, so it was a stigma. It like was a stigma. A stigma. Like a, yeah, okay. I, think, I think it's that aspect of it. And I know the, the other point you're probably going to point out is what Jordan said leading up from Game 3 to Game 4. And, and I'll let you expand on that with the quote he, he had basically said about the Pistons. But, which is huge. Which is which huge, is, which exactly. Is huge. And I agree with you. That was glossed over, and that should have been talked about a little bit more. And whoever was interviewing Jordan should have thrown that out there uh, to kind of give a little bit more uh, background, put, put things into context a little bit more. However, what I'm saying is this. Even if the Celtics did do that, which obviously they did, it wasn't right. No one ever questioned Larry or McHale or Parrish or DJ or any of these other guys that made up the late 80s Celtics uh, for walking off the court while Adrian Dantley was out the line. And the only reason why McHale stayed on was because Isaiah actually pulled him out there and shook his hand. And he didn't even acknowledge Lambeer. And Lambeer went up to McHale and said, hey, great game, good job, good luck next year, whatever. Um, however, I thought that the Pistons used that to basically give them a green light to do that to Chicago. And the way I'm saying it is, always leave a place better than you found it. Be better than your predecessors. You had a chance yeah. to really look like a class act in that point, 
and you didn't. And I think that's that's all I could really say. I, I don't know why the Celtics uh, uh, aren't uh, villainized more for, for what they did to Detroit in 88. But all I could say is that doesn't necessarily give you, uh, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. That doesn't give you a green light to do that to your opponent. So go ahead. They... The, the, and the, the answer to the question that, I, that I, I came up with is is pretty deep, actually. Okay. And, and And I don't want to bring race into it too much, but kind of just exactly what you brought up, the stigma of what the Pistons were at that time. It was the golden era of basketball, mm-hmm. and the torch was supposed to be passed over to Jordan, right? Right. But what Jordan, what Jordan said after the Game 3 win over Detroit – he said the Pistons are undeserving champions. He said the bad boys are bad for basketball. And in that moment, Jordan reduced the Pistons to thugs, not as champions as they were that had plowed their way through the toughest road in the golden era. Sure. I mean, sure, yeah. sure Jordan shook hands uh, in the years before, but his words invalidated those actions, in my opinion. It's a good point. By, by, by saying that. So Jordan gives the, the credence to what, most people are already thinking who are the, and, and especially given you got to think about the time as well. This is 1991 mm-hmm. where the, where the war on drugs was going on, the Ronald Reagan administration. Right. So the view, the view on, you know, black people per se, or even young black men at that time, it was just negative. Mm-hmm. And even though Jordan's a young black man himself, for him to lend the credence that already was given that other people were thinking confirmed that and also the Bulls making it an issue is the reason why we're still talking about it today. The Celtics didn't have that kind of stigma that they had on them. Larry was Larry was the, the great, great white hope. He was great, always thank, seen thank you for saying it for me. He, he was the great white hope. Right. He, he was, was always celebrated right. and I think that bothered a lot of a lot of young black men. I think that bothered a lot of young black basketball players and Isaiah who had kind of stuck up for Rodman and even said, like, if Larry's a great basketball player, but I don't think he would be celebrated if he was just another black guy. And that caused a ton of controversy. And, uh, you know, Larry and, and, and Isaiah eventually squashed that in a joint press conference and everything like that. But I think all of those things amassed to Larry, Magic, Michael looking like heroes, even though Magic and, and Michael are both black. But Isaiah and those Detroit Pistons looking like villains, classless, uh, arrogant, smug, whatever whatever adjective you want to use, that's what they were looked like. And you know what I mean? And people gloss over those things, Celtics walking out, Jordan's comments. And I think Detroit basically basically stayed true to who they were. We're bad boys, we're bad for the league. Well, you know what? This is what bad boys can do. You know what I mean? To quote Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, let's show them what bad boys can do. You know, bad boys for life. Exactly. But that just the fact that that part was left out that Jordan said that sure. spoke, spoke, spoke volumes to me and why I couldn't just take as hard of a position as you did, uh, you know, initially when we first started discussing this, because I see both sides. I yeah. see, I see why Jordan would be pissed off. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh man, you not, you don't not even mad enough to shake my hand. Horace Grant, Horace Grant just called him straight up, bitch, yeah, essentially, which was another one of my favorite parts. That was that, awesome. That was interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, no, it was it was good, and I understand where the Bulls were at. It's like, hey, here we are. We're battling three straight years. Or I'm sorry, this is our fourth year actually in the playoffs together. You guys smacked our asses down three straight years, twice in the Eastern Conference Finals, 
And yeah, we finally got you. But you couldn't even at least shake our hands or acknowledge us or anything like that. That is low. And yes, I'm not condoning anything else anybody has done uh, You know that may have led up to that. But I'm just saying the Pistons had an opportunity. Isaiah in particular had an opportunity to put his foot down and say, Hey, you know what, Bill? I understand where you're going to. I understand you're upset. But let's shake their hands. Small embrace, if if you want, hey, good job and good luck. And that's it. If you would have done that, I'm telling you, the trajectory of everyone's careers, maybe not their careers, but certainly the um, the reputation and what we how we view Isaiah and the Bad Boy Pistons would have been much different, in my opinion. The sad part to me is that when Isaiah came on this morning on, on first take... And, and I have the sound, by the way, for that. He, he 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 did he did get up. Go, go ahead and play that, and, and then I'll and then I'll yeah. Re- and he talked, and basically this sound by this is from Get Up, by the way, and it talks about. And I sorry to interrupt, Chaz, but I think this will help your point as well. This will bolster that. Yeah, run, run that. Yeah, absolutely. And this talks about the price he paid for that lack of handshake. I didn't make it. I know the criteria for selection of making a team. I had fit all the criteria, and. And that's a big hole in my resume. That That is the biggest hole in my resume. That is the only place and that's the only thing on my resume that I did not succeed at. Uh, you know, I, I graduated from college. I got a master's degree in education from the University of California at Berkeley. On the educational side, I've, I've succeeded. Uh, in the sports arena, you know, I've won at every level. And, you know, I tried to do everything correctly and I thought I should have made that dream team. However, I wasn't a part of it. That hurt me. And looking back, if if I'm not a part of the dream team because, you know, uh, a lapse in emotion in terms of not shaking someone's hand, if that's the reason why I didn't make the dream team, then I am more disappointed today than I was back then when I wasn't selected. Isaiah. So there you have it. That, that man is hurt. That, that man is clearly hurt because this is just supposed to stay on the court. It, it yeah. spilled over into real life, and now 30 years later almost, there's still some ill will and, and some feelings that, that are still hurt, clearly, as you can hear in Isaiah Thomas's voice, because he was left off the Dream Team. Outside of Bird, Magic, and Jordan on the Dream Team, you could argue that Isaiah should have been the next one to get the call over anybody else at the time based off of what his resume was. He's, he had went into saying that he was the player uh, rep, essentially, yeah. for the, the, the Players Association for maybe five or six years he listed off. He had beat Jordan, Bird, and Magic all in their primes to win two championships. So the stigma really hurt him, not only – for the time being, but even years later, and the fact that he was never able to even play for his own head coach on the Dream Team, yeah. which, which was Chuck Daly, mm-hmm. is, you know, it, obviously it doesn't doesn't sit well with him. But um, I, if you really ask him, he doesn't regret it at the end of the day, and I don't and I don't blame him for it. He he he's a man that's that stood behind what he did and hasn't switched up once on it. And I, I, I can't hate the guy for it. I, I, I don't. I'm not a huge fan of wanting to, rub, you know, losing and rubbing your nose in it. But you have to be a good sportsman at the same time. Sure. Yeah. 
and just but to at, but at the same time it, it 30 years later to talk about a handshake it just it seems silly so it, it does and you know you would hope Michael would let bygones be God bygones and Stephen A Smith even said I don't know how much of what Michael said about calling him an a-hole and talking about how, you know, I won't believe anything he says because he's had time to think it back. And those and what he says now aren't his true feelings. You wonder how much of that Michael actually believes or how much of that he's tapping into how he felt in 1991 when everything went down the way it did. And the thing is, I, it's not like Isaiah has been the only one really penalized for this. Just to give everyone something, you know, fast forward to 2009. LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers are eliminated by the Orlando Magic in the 09 Eastern Conference Finals, and uh, LeBron just walks off the court. He didn't acknowledge Dwight Howard or Stan Van Gundy or the other Magic players. And I remember LeBron was definitely under fire during that time. So obviously this isn't a set tradition, shaking hands after a playoff series in the NBA. It's more set in a sport like hockey where you actually go through the line in basketball, it's or just baseball. one of, or base. Well, not even in baseball. With, you know, your, with your own team. With yeah. your own team, yeah. No, but I'm talking about after a playoff series. You know, if anything, maybe the managers embrace and shake hands in the yeah. tunnel behind the scenes and whatnot. But in basketball, it's weird. It's not really a set thing. It's one of those unwritten things. But if you don't do it, you're going to come under fire by the media, by the fans. I mean, you imagine that happening. Uh, what happened in '91 in 2020? Oh my gosh! Isaiah would uh, Twitter would have exploded. Isaiah would have. Uh, I mean, he would have. They would have tried to throw him on the cross. No question about it. So, uh, all I'm saying is this: I've never been a fan of Isaiah's demeanor. I think there's a passive aggressive arrogance slash smug that goes along with with him at times. I, I wonder how genuine he really is. But hearing all the other things to put that situation in context. I could kind of understand why. It's just kind of it's just kind of crazy that seven out of twelve guys, out of seven guys that walked past the Bulls that played for the Pistons in that game, only it really only affected one guy yeah. long term. Because and, when and you're, I, and yes, I know he's a cat. He's a yeah, captain. Okay, he's, he's 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 the great one. But it's just it's just something that that, that I wanted to point out. And last thing on on it as well. Well, uh, for me at least, as far as how it affected the way that he played, you know, as far as that, that wrist injury, that that goes a lot into why they lost. If if Isaiah's maybe 100%, maybe they don't get swept in four games like that. But, you know, you, you, you never know, really, at, at, the end of, at the end of the day, they didn't talk about Magic's injury, uh, you know, either. In, in 89, yeah. Right, so it, it just, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a lot of what-ifs, but... I can't get too mad at the guy, and I and I loved for that Russell Westbrook. I I liked that. I didn't like it when he when he first came in and he was showboating and you know acting like he had never made a play. I don't like guys that do that, but that have that that edge. You know, I'm okay with it. That's sports. No, that's, having an edge. That, 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 that that's competitiveness. So yes. if you choose not to shake somebody's hand, know that you're going to get called out for it, but know that some people are going to understand like me. That's all. Yeah, exactly. And Chaz, that's the thing. It's I think it's the fact that he's been trying to walk it back. If he would have just stayed true, like, yeah, man, I mean, those were my feelings at the time. Maybe I was wrong because of how things are now. But, hey, you know what? 
That's what it was. We were emotional, hard-fought series. We got our asses kicked. We got swept. We got embarrassed on our own home court in two games. Uh, Yeah, if he just would have stuck to those guns, the fact that he's tried to walk it back, obviously to try to put himself in a better view of the public, like Michael says, I think that's what rubs Michael the wrong way because I think it feels like this guy's disingenuous and the only reason why he's saying what he's saying is to maintain a good guy type of image that I'm not really a bad boy. So I think that's that's what it, that, that's what really rubbed Michael the wrong way more so than anything. But here's what I will say for the Pistons and what Jordan should admit and Phil and Scotty and anyone on that on those teams uh, in '91 and '92 and '93, the Pistons ultimately helped propel Chicago to being a dynasty and twofold. Once again, I say this term twofold. They, they switched up their offense from being ISO heavy under Doug Collins to now incorporating the triangle offense and having a more equal opportunity type, type of thing. And it was Phil Jackson who noticed that. Like, what we do has a shelf life. So unless we start changing our offense and get guys like Paxson and incorporate Scottie Pippen into more of the decision-making of the offense and get guys like Horace, Horace Grant and Bill Cartwright more involved, Unless we do those things, we're going to continue to hit that wall against a great defense. Between that and Scotty and Michael and the other guys hitting the weight room and getting physically stronger to withstand the physical pounding, uh, and it not been for the Pistons, those two things don't, don't become a factor. I mean, the Bulls don't become who they were without the Pistons forcing them to change certain things. Exactly. And, and that's the same thing that... The Pistons had to go through with the Celtics. That the Bulls had to go through with the Pistons. Yeah. That you know every every team has that rivalry that they have to get through in order to to get over the top. So you know it, it's just a part of sports, and I'm glad we were able to maybe relive it a little bit. Hopefully, it it, it dies down and we don't really have to hear about it much ever again. But you know, with, with Jordan's reaction and and him being a meme again with with watching the video, yeah, you know that that <laughs> it, it it just all leads into entertainment and it, it's good for us, especially at this time. No, for sure, absolutely, and and I think I think we understand each other's points, Chaz. I think we're still in somewhat disagreement of it, but. I think we could kind of understand where things were at. Just like with Jerry Krause, the stuff we talk about with Jerry Krause. We don't, we don't condone the way he did things, but we could kind of understand the psyche, why he was trying to do the things he did. doesn't make it right, but if you could understand the reasoning, then at least it gives you a little bit more context uh, to, to I, it. I, I know this isn't a topic, but just, just really quick. What's up, brother? Why did, why did Jerry Krause, right before the All-Star break, oh. Re double down and rehash the fact that he already said that Phil isn't going to come back. Why? I I don't care if you're asked the question or or not. You've already came out at the over the the off season, the previous off season, saying that this is going to be Phil's last year. He knows it's his last year. The fans know. Reinsdorf knows. Jordan knows. Everybody knows. They're having this season. It's right before the All Star break. Uh, the Bulls are about to play Salt Lake. I'm um, sorry, Salt Lake. The Utah Jazz up in Salt Lake City for a regular season game for the second time, and they lose, get swept by in the regular season series by the Utah Jazz. I'm sure in part because Ryan, not Ryan Kraus, mm-hmm. sorry, just couldn't keep his big mouth shut. Why? Why? Why did he just have to come out and say some stuff when they're having that good 
of a season going into the All-Star break. Well, and I think that's really what it was. Uh, Kraus made a lot of bonehead decisions on on that. I think he was trying to put Michael in a position where, hey, are you with us or are you with him? You know what I mean? And even Phil was saying at the end of this thing, and I'm sure we're going to get to that point in in the future of this series uh, as the episodes come up, uh, we're going to hear what Michael's, obviously Michael loved Phil, but even Phil had to admit, like, I gotta, you have to think about your own career. I, I love the fact you guys are staying loyal to me, but if you have an opportunity, if, if staying in Chicago makes the most business sense for you, you've got to take that. But yeah, as far as Kraus trying to pit the two sides against each other in the middle of the season, that was silly. But once again, to put the focus back on him so he could have his credit so the focus could be uh, on his moves and his decisions and to take away from what the team is doing. It's short-sighted, it's petty, but that's how Kraus rolled at that point. He was fed up with everything and everybody. just didn't make any sense to me. It doesn't. It doesn't. I don't even really have a good answer for that. Moving, moving on to better things. I know this is <laughs> we're, ta- we're talking a lot of Bulls, a lot of Jordan, but they did face the Lakers in the 1991 Finals. Yes, and this happened to be Magic's last great season, mm-hmm. leading us, to, leading right. our Lakers to the finals. Let's talk about that team a little bit. What did you think that the Lakers could have done to win that series going back? Byron Scott actually feels like they could have won that series if they stayed healthy and if they were able to tie the series in that pivotal uh, game four. Yeah, that was that was pretty interesting. Uh, I mean, the, the Lakers were actually pretty good on paper. Obviously, key components that were gone. Michael Cooper was gone at that point. Great defender. Kareem had retired already uh, two years in. Pat Riley had moved on to the New York Knicks. So now you, you bring in Mike Dunleavy, who was a really good coach. I mean, minus that stint with the Clippers he had later on. But his time with the Lakers, as well as his time in Portland, uh, he had some good years. Unfortunately, just never was able to get over the hump and win a championship. But they had a good team. Lottie Divac was already, he had filled in for, for Kareem at that point. You still had Magic. You still had Worthy. You still had uh, Byron Scott. You had A.C. Green as well, Sam Perkins, uh, uh, who was teammates with Jordan uh, at the University of North Carolina, Tony Smith, Eldon Campbell. Uh, they had a really good team. I, I mean, on paper, they, they, were, they were talented. They, weren't, they may have not been the Showtime team, but they were good. Uh, the thing was, and Jordan pointed this out, they only beat us by two in game one, and it, they needed a game-winning three from Sam Perkins to do that. And I think the Bulls felt good. It's like, we didn't play our best game at all, and here we are. We were still in position to win that ball game. The Lakers just, I think the fact that Scotty was now picking up Michael, uh, excuse me, Magic Johnson full court, 94 feet, and Michael didn't which have. Which no one did. Which nobody ever did. David Aldridge pointed that out in uh, episode four. And Michael now kind of being more of a defensive rover and maybe guarding James Worthy at times, but then Worthy goes down in that series. Uh, uh, Byron Scott goes down in that series. So now Jordan kind of becomes more of a defensive disruptor and doesn't have to work as hard defensively, so now he could kind of focus more energy on offense. And I think the fact was the Bulls just as a team, never mind just Scotty and Michael, the Bulls as a team outplayed the Laker role players. Even minus, uh, I mean, obviously minus Worthy and Scott, but even, and I said this last night, even if Worthy and Scott were healthy, 
John Paxson was outplaying Byron throughout that series. James Worthy didn't have the impact as he had in, in the 88 finals and before that in, in 87 as well. You got the sense that this Laker team just was not that good compared to this Chicago team. And I think they were talented. They had the names. But in the end, I just don't think the, that Laker team had it. It was, it was Jordan's time. Magic was, you know, I I don't want to say on the decline, but he wasn't the player that he was in 85, right? Sure. Yeah. So it, it, father, father time is undefeated, so he's starting to come down. Jordan is emerging at the same time. Mm-hmm. And not only that, he's learning different philosophies on how to get guys involved in that series. It, it just so happened to be that series where he just decided to be more of a facilitator um, not for the whole game, but at different parts of the game, rather than being full go the entire game or every minute that he's on the floor. So it made it very hard for a roster of Eldon Campbell, Vladdy Divot, Magic, Sam Perkins, Byron Scott, James Worthy, Michael Thompson. I mean, those are those are great players and, and really good players, but it was just their time. And to see the footage that was, I think it was redone, remastered, because it looked crystal clear Mm -hmm. but that footage of on the floor when jordan is in the arms of his teammates clutching his fist and you know crying on the court before he even gets to the locker room that was that was amazing to watch and even lebron tweeted uh today the day after watching that episode and watching jordan win his first championship reminded lebron of his first and those emotions are unreal especially when you go through the fire so for sure yeah seven long years of a lot of disappointment a lot of turnover and you finally break through and obviously breaking through against the Pistons I think they knew we're going to take down LA this isn't the same LA team as we saw in the in the early to mid 80s you know I mean Magic is yeah Magic is still a great player even though 12 years in and that what would end up being one of his final seasons of his career and certainly the last time we would ever see uh, Magic in, in the NBA Finals. But a lot of these guys just, it just felt like they were done. It just, they didn't strike the same fear as they once did uh, during the 80s, during the Showtime era. And, uh, I mean, maybe it was different coaching and, and things like that, but I just think the Bulls were ready. They were primed, and a lot of guys stepped up. John Paxson stepped up for them. Scottie Pippen stepped up defensively. The front line, uh, you know, with Cartwright and Horace Grant stepped up and outplayed guys like Perkins and uh, and AC and Vladi Divac and I'm not to take anything away that was a great Laker team unfortunately though just just didn't have enough and yeah it's hard to beat a good team when you don't have some of your top guys there but I don't know if it would have made a difference maybe the series goes six or seven but I still remain to this time it was just the Bulls's it was the Bulls uh, championship to win oh yeah absolutely yeah so I mean it just sucks to know that that was Magic's, not officially his last game, but that was the last time that we would see Magic as Magic right. before he came, you know, came out with his uh, HIV um, yeah. Yeah. speech. And you know and what? And his retirement and, and later on the next year. Oh, yeah. No, sorry to interrupt, Chaz. Uh, but I want to, and I think you'll agree with this. You saw a stark contrast with how Magic responded to Michael and the Bulls eliminating them and what Isaiah had done. I mean, it was a complete polar opposite. You know, obviously Magic was excited to be battling with Michael. Magic representing the past, Michael the the, the present, and, and obviously the future. And them embracing like they did in the tunnel. And, and Magic, 
in his post-game interview heaping praise onto Michael Jordan because I think he felt at that point this guy had paid his dues. He had gone through the fire against Boston, against Detroit, against all these other teams, and here he is. He deserves to be here at that point. I just thought it was a stark contrast how Magic, in defeat, remained very gracious and classy. The universe usually tends to unfold as it should. So Isaiah Thomas isn't mentioned with Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and LeBron James and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. He's he's great, but he's not mentioned with those guys. Magic knew that he was great, and Magic knew that he was not only great, but the face of the league. So that wasn't even in his personality to slight anybody, especially after he lost. Um, even when he lost to Larry, they shook hands. So you don't expect that uh, from Magic, and Isaiah doing it does lending credence because there were some that would expect that from the Pistons and they proved them right. So that's why that sticks out in history so much. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of similarities with that Laker team to other Laker teams that Kobe has been on Mm -hmm. as well. Let's talk about a little, some similarities between the black Panther that they called him black Jesus and number eight, number 24, the Black Mamba. What do, what do you see as, obviously their games were identical because Kobe stole all of Jordan's moves. Jordan would even admit it, that Kobe <laughs> would co- possibly even beat him in a, a one-on-one yeah. back in a, two, a 2013 clip that resurfaced recently. But other than obviously their games, one thing that stood out to me was their mentality. Yes, Yes. Speak speak on that a little bit, brother. Yeah, and I think when they were starting to incorporate the triangle offense, and Michael wasn't a fan of it because Doug Collins had uh, basically built the offense around Michael and Michael's isolations, and obviously Michael was scoring 36, 37 points a game. He had become an elite player. He was an MVP. He was an all-star. He was a superstar. He became the face of the league at that at that juncture uh, in the, in the history of the NBA. So I think now Tex Winter comes in, Phil comes in, they have this idea for the triangle offense, and it's just like, hey, Michael, uh, move the ball more, move the ball more. And he, and he's just, and there's like, there's no I in team. And Michael responded, yeah, but there is an I in win. And we heard Shaq tell that a similar type of story in regards to Kobe in Kobe's uh, celebration of life back at Staples Center in February and said, there's an I in that mother effort. <laughs> So just the way that those two guys, uh, their thought process, the way they competed, how similar it was, it was just staggering to me. I'm like, there's no way that these two guys could have been that similar unless, of course, Michael had told that story to Kobe years earlier. I mean, who knows? But that's the one thing that got me. I I just think, to be honest, it it wouldn't be a coincidence if they did get those, if Kobe did get that saying from Michael, even though they were different in terms of how uh, they said it or how it recently came out, but they always both just had to have an edge. Just yeah. like if you if you if Eddie Jones beat Kobe in a one in in one on one or or made a play on him in practice, they had to play one on one after. So Kobe left the gym knowing that he was you know better. Same kind of edge that Michael had to have mm-hmm. even late late in his career. With these 97, 98 Bulls, he always had to have that edge as well. Even going back to that that preseason game that they had over uh, across seas, what was it, in Paris? Yeah. As well as even the the game during the regular season with the Clippers where he wasn't getting 
getting any help whatsoever. Jordan mm-hmm. always had to have an edge, right. uh, even though he was, you know, would lose some games here and there. He was always going out as a winner, which is why he went six for six and not even one single game seven in any of his final series. That's he, tough to do. He was even a kill- Bill Russell went to game sevens. Yeah, no, he was a killer, and I, I think eventually he bought in to the whole team concept, the way Kobe eventually bought in, and these guys realized we're, we could only do so much on our own. We need someone else to ease our burden. And we saw, I just mentioned, John Paxson, what he did in Game 5 of that 91 Finals. I mean, he ended up, I think, with 20-something points, and Jordan just kept feeding him. And Jordan, we would ultimately see that later on with guys like Steve Kerr. He realized, I could do a lot on my own, but I'm only going to go so far unless I really include my teammates and keep them involved in the offense. And Chaz, I've always felt, when guys are involved in off- on offense, the energy will always be there defensively. They'll they'll be out there hustling more, getting out, fighting over screens, guarding their man, being more committed to that end of the floor. And I think Kobe and Michael, it took them a while to realize that, but eventually they did, and it, it, they, uh, their teams were better for it. So, Which, if Kobe could pick one, this is a, a good question that I kind of always ask myself and a few others, Uh, in my group chat, but if Kobe could have one of his championships back, I'm sorry, one of his finals losses back to turn into a championship to to finish with six, which one would you think he would want back more? The 08 Celtics one or the 04 Pistons one? No doubt in my mind, I think the 04 Pistons one hurt, but, and I think because it was the end of that era with Shaq, but you, if you have a chance to get another one against Boston, considering the the huge Laker fan Kobe was growing up and the historian that he is, no doubt in my mind he'd love to get that 08 Celtics one back. How about you? What do you think? It, I I wanted to lean, lean that way too. I feel the same way. But to question. hear him to hear him talk about that 2004 series where he blames himself a lot. Everybody knows that it was his fault more than any, anything yeah as, as 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 far as play as far as play yeah rick, rick fox wasn't the same uh malone was carl hurt malone, carl, yeah. carl malone was hurt obviously that that factored in but they still could have won that series when kobe looks back and he speaks on it himself as far as getting the ball in the shack and having and having shack dictate pace more than allowing kobe to be trapped by Rip Hamilton, Tayshaun Prince, and Chauncey Billups as soon as he comes across half court and they couldn't get into the floor of their offense. So that that gives me pause, but as, a, as an NBA historian that I know Kobe was, I know he'll probably lean Celtics. So of course. Just a question that I Of course. No, that's a, and that's a good one too. And obviously that's one of a few black eyes, uh, two black eyes on Phil Jackson's career. Phil Jackson, you know, the, I, heard, I heard a stat yesterday from Scott Van Pelt Phil Jackson won six championships uh, with the Chicago Bulls, and since he left in 98, or I should say forced out by Jerry Krause, the Bulls as an organization have won five, five playoff series in 22 years, and they haven't been back to a final since. And what did Phil Jackson do? He won five more championships with the LA Lakers uh, from 2000 to, to, through 2010. So 
sometimes you can't mess up with a good thing, and you can't bite the hand that feeds you. So I'm sure that's still one of the great regrets of not just Jerry Reinsdorf, but Jerry Krause. I'm sure after Jerry Krause had some years to think about and go over, he realized, ah, could I have put some personal feelings aside? And it just goes to show you how special Phil was and why he's the Zen master and why he's one of the most celebrated coaches in the history of American team sports. I just wanted to throw that aspect out there as well. In the close, I am so happy that Krause did that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Jerry Krause. Oh, Phil took man. one year off and came right into L.A. and got us three in a row, sent us to the finals four out of his first five years, Yep, and, and left us with five more rings and went down. And I, I don't care what anyone says. Red Auerbach, who? No. <laughs> Phil, Phil Jackson is the greatest coach of all time, in my opinion. It, just based off of what he did with Dennis Rodman mm-hmm. alone, you know, no no coach would have the fortitude to let their player go to Vegas for 48 to 86 hours, 96 hours during the season, essentially giving, giving them two all-star breaks within a 60-day <laughs> period. But that's no who he was. That. But, but he yeah. won the championship that year, and he goes down as the greatest. Uh, I'll once again requote Derek Fisher. He doesn't try to control you. He just empowers you to be who you are. That's what made him special. And clearly, on the NBA, Mount Rushmore of coaches, Phil, Red, even though I know how you feel, Pop and Riley. I think that's... I think that's well, Red's up there. Red's, Red's up, up there, there yeah. Absolutely. I, I, but, I mean, with, with everybody else... Phil, there's no way that anybody, in my mind, eclipses Phil. And there's a lot of great coaches, but no, just, want, just wanted to put that. If you have Michael Jordan <laughs> and Shaq saying that they don't want to play for anybody else, right? What else? Is, what else do you need to know? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, um, he, he's he's the greatest, and maybe his style didn't always resonate well with management and ownership, but it resonated well with the players. And at the end of the day, isn't that all that matters? Being in the tr- being, uh, having the trust from your players with a guy that you're stuck in a foxhole with for 82 games plus playoffs, it doesn't. It shouldn't. Ma- nothing else should matter. No other relationships should matter except for the relationship between the coach and the players. Never mind coach and management, coach and ownership. And that's where Kraus. Once again, I use this term short sighted. So, I know you got to roll, man. I got to roll too. Great stuff today. This was a fun one to break down, my friend. Oh yeah. Always a pleasure, my dude. Even even if we don't see eye to eye on anything, I'm always going to respect whatever opinion you got. Likewise, uh, and it, it, it's great. It's great to go back and forth with you, buddy. Sure, so, absolutely. Lake, Laker Nation, we'll be back at it. Stay safe. Stay inside, please. We only have a few more weeks of this order. Please don't get us extended. I want to go back out and I want to hoop. I want to go to church again. Go shopping. Buy some Jordans. Go to the <laughs> beach. You know, yeah, and, and and summer's coming, so stay inside, guys. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Keep washing those hands and whatnot. Thank you for joining us once again on the Showtime Forum podcast. We do these podcasts for you, Laker Nation. I know, I know, we're talking a lot of Bulls, but we're also inclu- incorporating some Laker history in there as well. Be sure to download and subscribe to the Showtime Forum podcast on all streaming platforms. Follow us on social media. Uh, follow us on the website www.showtimeforum.com. Chaz, how, how can they follow you? You guys know where to follow me on Twitter at Chaz Pearson and on Instagram at Chaz underscore Jaron J A R O N. Get at me. I, I always got some good stuff on both my social medias. Uh, I'll even go back and forth with you like me and Chris did 
in our text message chain. So uh, if you got an opinion, throw it at me. I-, I love to go back and forth with you guys and, you know, see what the difference of opinions are. So yeah. appreciate it. No, absolutely. Definitely follow Chaz. You can also follow me at Chris underscore Camelo on Twitter, C Camelo one on Instagram and also follow me on Facebook as well. Thanks again, Laker nation. Keep, uh, keep like I said, keep quarantining, social distancing, we're almost, we're almost there. We're almost there. And hopefully, who knows, maybe we'll, we'll see a finish to this uh, 2020 season. Take care, everybody. Later.